Okay. So, first things first. Um, I did not feel satisfied with yesterday's class. I spent much, much time reviewing, re reviewing it in my mind. And I did not think it was a good class. Um, so, I'm not basing today's class off of yesterday's class. I'm going to start over. What? What? Chapter 22. Chapter 22. No, I'm not saying that you... In fact, I'm very happy that you understood it. Um, my concern is twofold. One, I wasn't sure people understood it. And just because some people understood doesn't mean everyone understood it. Um, well, I can't really guarantee that everyone understands everything anyway. Um, the... The other thing, though, is that I felt that things were not precise enough to help go forward in the text. In other words, one of the, one of the difficulties when we study Chassidus is that Chassidus uses analogies in order to create conceptual categories that are then used to help navigate some kind of truth about God and the world that we don't actually directly experience. Um, and that's several steps removed, right? So you've got the analogy, which you then have to understand in a particular way to then abstract an idea that you then use as an approximation for the truth. Um, and it is very tempting to try and, and, and weave everything together very clearly, very coherently, try to, and, and get a sense of what we're dealing with um, and lose a lot of the important steps along the way. And then when the conversation becomes more complicated, um, we don't have those pieces there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with. So I drew something on the board. Um, and this is going to be the going forward, bef go, or going into chapter 22, this is going to be our metaphysics. This is going to be our ontology. In other words, everything that exists um, fits into one of these categories. I want to talk briefly about each one. Okay. Um, and then we're going to start chapter 22. And as chapter 22 develops, we're going to see um, things get more complicated. Okay. So the first thing we're going to start is the physical world. The physical world is exactly what you think it is. That is what we inhabit. That is what we experience. Okay. Now, everything in the physical world um, is being enlivened by a spiritual being. So think body, soul, right? Now the spiritual beings come in two basic categories. There are holy creations and then there's what's called klipa or sitra achra. Okay. Overly simplify. Um, if you have a pig, what is, what is um, enlivening the pig? The klipa and sitra achra. If you have Shabbos candles, and you're going to say, well, I don't even see how Shabbos candles are alive. Don't worry about that. What is enlivening the Shabbos candles that you lit? Holy. 
the right. Okay, I'm oversimplifying tremendously. Okay. Um, Correct. There's a, there's a strict binary. Now there are, within that, there's incredible level of complication. There's there's both the the holy creations and the klipa and sitrachra are multi-dimensional. Instead, we can speak about higher and lower. We can speak about different types, and it, it gets very complicated. Right. Um, for those of you familiar with the idea that there's a, something called seder histalshulis or the chain-like descent of worlds, which I hate because. I don't like describing things in terms that you never use outside of Chassidus, and I've never described anything as chain-like before, but whatever. There's actually two parallel Seder Hishtalshalos. is one of the Holy Creations and one of the Klippa. Um, but then they're also integrated with each other, so it gets very messy. We're not going to touch any of that right now. Okay. But the thing is, these are creations, right? Now, the key thing that we need to understand, what differentiates the physical world from the Holy Creations and the Klippa Sitrachra. In other words, I'm treating the Klippa and Sitrachra as the same in the, for right now, which is why I put them on one level, and the physical world as something different. So, well, the, the physical world is being enlivened and they're doing the enlivening, okay? Um, in the physical world, the, in, the native experience, the, the natural sense of God is that is, there isn't. Okay. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but when we talk about the physical world in Hasidus, um, the thing to realize is that the physical world does not give, does not in and of itself give off or allow or facilitate any sense of God. So, and that's going to be in contrast with the so-called spiritual creations. They all have a sense of God. In other words, the holy creations, the klipa, all of them, have a sense of God. That, 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 in other words, as obvious as the physical objects in front of you are to a physical being, that's how obvious God is to the spiritual creations, the holy creations in the klipa. Okay. Now, that means that when we are talking about um, how things relate to God, how the creations relate to God in this text, we are by and large not talking about the physical world. At least not directly. Why are we not talking about it directly? Because this physical world doesn't really have any relationship with God. Now, in as much as it's being enlivened by these other spiritual beings who do have a relationship with God, so this physical world embodies their relationships, but it's not like the, the actual thing. So when we're gonna talk about the, what the creations perceive, how they relate, what they feel, like we're not talking about the physical world, not, um, we're talking about this other kind of spiritual realm. Now, then we have God's word, the word of God. The word of God is not a creation, okay? In what sense is the word of God not a creation? Because God and only God can create. And none of God's creations can create. Right? So, the God's word, if I draw a line between creations and the creator, where would I draw that line on that little chart? I would draw it between God's word and... God? No. Creations? Where would I draw the line? In fact, I'll even do it. Where would I draw the line between the creator and the creations? No. That's heresy. That's like real, real serious heresy. 
This is the creator. Okay. God's word is not something else that God created and goes on and like runs the world on its own. Okay. Now, in that sense, think of the analogy. I am talking to you, right? I am one being. You are another being. Do we consider to be my word to be a third being? No. No, right? right? I'm speaking to you directly. There's no intermediary. The word is what? The word is that which issues forth from me and enters into your reality, right? So what is the word of God? That which enters... That which enters what? This no. This the is creation's re- reality? The creation's reality. Right. It enters the creation's reality? Yes. We must like really stop and, and think about that. Mm-hmm. If you are created, right? Like, just, just, just a bit. If I'm saying something, right? The words that I say, if you're going to hear them, they have to enter your reality at some point, right? You have to hear them. <laughs> if God is creating something, then whatever... Whatever, something of God has to reach the creation, has to enter the creation's reality in order to cause it to exist, to govern it, to enliven it, to do whatever the influence of God is. Yeah. So the God's word is what issues forth from God that creates the creations. But the word doesn't actually create it. Okay. In as much as they're saying my words don't talk to you, I talk to you. Right? Just not separate. Right, it's just not separate. Okay, but what's that? It's just not separate, but there's, there's, there's different kinds of not separate. Right? You didn't hear any of that, right? Why didn't you hear any of that? Right, because I was talking to myself within myself. And if I talk to myself within myself... It doesn't enter you, right? It needs, right? So there's not separate in the sense of being within myself, and there's not separate in the sense that it issues forth from me, but it's not a distinct entity from me. So the way I put it on this thing, right? If, if God's word is creating creations, it's issuing forth from God like a spoken word and entering the reality of the creations. That's what it means to create them. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So in this model... God occupies limited space. Does that make sense? Yes. Why does God have to occupy limited space? You said yes. So why does God have to occupy limited space? Because the creations occupy part of the space. That's right. Mm -hmm. The, The word of God is issuing forth from God and entering the created reality. Okay, so now I'm going to draw a different line. If I'm going to talk about the created reality versus the reality of God, where am I going to draw that line? The created reality versus versus what? Versus the reality of God. There's the created reality. There's like, you know, there's France and then there's Spain, right? There's a boundary between them. Where's the boundary between created reality? God and God's word. God and God's word. So here, this is the created reality. This is God's reality. 
Okay, so again, I want you to think about me in terms of me speaking. The clearer this is, the more that we go to the chapter, we're going to have something that's going to get more complicated than the chapter, and this also be kind of clear. Rabbi Kaufman, students that listen to me, students that are not listening to me. Okay, good? Okay? Yeah. Your notes. Oh, gosh. Clear? Right? Yeah. Okay. The notes don't have any sense of me. Okay. So I, well, I'm going to assume that you're all in this category, right? Students that listen to me. And then you write down things on your notebook, right? Is the world our classroom? No, no, no. There's only things. They're not allowing anything else. If I am talking to you, my words are part of me or part of you? Part of us. Oh. I want you to think about it. Would we say they're my words or they're your words? They're yours. Right. So the words are mine. Mm-hmm. Part of me. Mm-hmm. But part of the audience. words have entered right. your reality. Mm-hmm. That which means you can hear them, right? Yes. Yeah. They're my words. Yes. So if I draw the line between me and you, mm-hmm. the words are mine. They're not yours. Right. Like I have in the green. Yeah. But if I ask where the words are located. Oh. They're located in your reality because you're the one hearing them. If they yeah. stayed in my reality, then, in then I would just be thinking. Then there would be spoken words, right? So where is the word? Where is God's word located within the created reality? Mm-hmm. But it's the part of the created reality that's the creator and not yeah. no. the creation. Good. Oh. Whereas God is actual being. Like I'm not the words, right? Like. I, like I don't actually like enter your rhythm. It'd be kind of weird. I just like pop myself into your consciousness. That would be scary. Can't do that. <laughs> I can say words that issue forth from me and enter into your reality through your ears and then your brain and whatever. So then, how is that creation reality or created reality? Right. Where is the word of God located? In the creator. Yeah. In the creator. Where are Absolutely. my spoken words located? Within me. No, uh, yeah, creative reality. An external reality, right? Yeah. Right? So this is, right, this is internal to God, this is external to God. So it's God's reality is technically thought. No, why? It's like something... It's like... equal to thought. For God, this would be internal, and for God, this would be... External. Okay? This, we have to, like, sit with this, because the, the, the clearer this is, the easier what's going to follow is going to be. Okay? But is it right to say that God's reality is thought? I mean, that's what we call using language within your own internal reality, right? Yeah. So we speak about God's thought, we got about how God's word is over here. Right? But God's word's over here is called speech because it's external. It's external, okay? So far so good? Yes. Okay. Now, there is one tiny problem with this. Yeah. What's the difference between me and God? Um, um, God, God doesn't go to the gym so he doesn't have a body. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad philosophical question. Okay. No, God, no, but actually God doesn't have a body. Meaning God is not located in a kind of space vis-a-vis other things. What does that mean? I can, all right, there is me and my internal reality, and then there's you, and you're external to my reality. God, there's no internal and external. For God, there's no internal and external. There's just internal to God. There's just reality. Yeah. No. In other words, really, 
well, this, the, prob the problem is you know, there is no external. So right. The problem know. is for God, there's nothing external. That's just from our point of view. <laughs> One second. One second. Stop. Okay. So at this point, before we start chapter 22, what we would say is like this. Okay. This is how chapter 21 ends. Okay. The way these guys, right, the creations, not, not, not this guy. He, he doesn't count. We don't care about him. Why? Because no sense of God. He's no sense of anything, right? Yeah. But the, these, these spiritual creations, they have a view of this. And then God has a view of it. And the rule is going to be very simple. What I just drew is whose point of view? Ours. I don't, we're not going to use the word ours the rest of this class. We're going to try to People. Creations. The creations. Which creations? The holy creations. The holy creations, the things that you All these so-called spiritual creations, if you like to call them that, this is how they view it. They view it. They view it this way. How does the physical world view it? If all there is is just the physical, physical world. world, right? Okay. Wait, the physical world. How does the physical world view this? The physical world would just say that there's just. The physical world. Just cut off there. Right. And there's a weird kind of parallel between God and the physical world because the physical world has a sense that there's nothing external to the physical world, and God has a sense that there's that's nothing external to the That's weird. Right. Yes, that is a major, that is a major, major concept in Sidis, but it's not for today. It's not in time yet. When the last idea is the author I've ever introduced. Interesting. And it's one of the Rebbe's favorite ideas. Also relates to the Rebbe's Okay. So, so, the physical world, on its own, we're not going to talk about it. So this, what I drew here, right, that's these holy creations and the Cleveland Sitrafa, that's how they view the situation, right? But God would say, well, actually, as far as I'm concerned, there is really no external reality to me. And there's really no external reality to me. Is the God's word really speaking to others? No. 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 Right. And so these creations are a kind of living a delusion. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's where we end off in chapter 21, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to start chapter 22. Again, we'll go a little bit faster this time because we did do some stuff yesterday. Okay. Yet since the Torah employs the human language and the word of the omnipresent, blessed be he, is actually called speech, like the speech of a human being. Now, what is the key characteristic of speech? That it is something issued forth from the speaker and enters the reality of the other. Right? So you're has to, there's only speech when you, the speaker, have an external reality. By virtue of the, and, and for in truth, now truth means here it's not an illusion, it's not a pretend, it's real. By virtue of the descent and flow of life force to the lower planes. Now, what, he, what does he mean by the flow, life force? The life force would be what on our little chart? A synonym for what? For God's word. For God's word. So, and the lower planes would be what? The holy, the no, lower planes, planes, planes is like a... The creations and the creations. No, creations are things. Mm -hmm. right? The planes? Oh, the Word. created reality? The created reality, oh. right? Wait. When, when, in other words, the idea that something is going down means it's leaving one place and entering another, another place. What is in that other place? We're going to get to in a second. God's Word leaves the place of God and enters this ex place, so to speak, external to God. Right? The created reality, the place where created things can exist. How does that happen? Okay. That happens by means of powerful contractions of various kinds. Okay, so now we have to understand what that means. 
Okay. This is not a perfect analogy, um, but it is it is uh, it is sufficient for our purposes. Okay. And then I'm going to compare to the analogy that I did yesterday, which I'm going to bring up again, but we're not going to spend as much time on it. If you are speaking, your words are ultimately rooted in your emotions. As we learned in chapter 20, the reason why we speak is we are driven by emotions. So the example that Alter Rebbe uses is that you have a strong desire for something, say food. And ultimately, you know, that causes you to think in language, which ultimately might cause you to speak if it's, you know, useful to get the food, right? Say, I want chocolate cake or something, right? Um, many times if children and to a lesser extent adults cannot speak. And the reason they cannot speak is interestingly and paradoxically because they're emotions. So what are we seeing? Is that the emotions, which are the ultimate originator of speech, right? Because emotion leads to thought, leads to speech, right? When the emotions are too intense, it inhibits your speech. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. In other words, as much as the emotions are the root and ultimate source of our speech and they enliven the speech and they motivate the speech, there needs to be a sufficient degree of distance or, or from the raw emotion itself in order for speech, for that matter, for even thought to take place. Does that strike everyone as intuitively correct? Okay. So if you, if you can be extremely emotional at the point you can't even think, but we're going to focus on speaking. Okay. So the way we do this as human beings is we actually, and we can think of it in two ways, we move our consciousness away from our emotions or we decrease the emotional intensity. And they're probably two, both correct. Sometimes we feel very intense emotions and we move our consciousness away. Um, so it's like suppressing emotion. Or sometimes we do something so that the emotional intensity itself, right? We process the emotion, the emotion, we, we cry, whatever it is, and then that, and the emotional intensity itself is weakened. That makes sense? Okay. Now, what would this parallel? For God, there is no such thing as external reality, right? If that truth of God is so powerful and so obvious and so felt, can God's words ever be the words of speech? No, right? So what has to happen to that truth of God? Right, God would need to move away from it. Now, here's the thing. Is God really moving away from it? No. Because again, emotions are a limited thing within the broad scope of our psyche. He's not moving away from his truth. Is God um, diminishing his truth? It's less true? So that's what we have to say. He's hiding the truth. What do we mean hiding? How do you hide something without removing it? So you think about how when your hand falls asleep, totally asleep, your sense of life in your hand is completely hidden. It's not felt at all, but it's in no way been removed or altered. So God hides his, the truth that there is no external reality for him. And that's what allows his speech to function like speech. But now... When he speaks, it's still, there's still a sense that he is speaking, right? So the creations, it's not like God disappeared. It's just that now God, rather than being the only reality, God is one of the things in reality. He is the speaker of the words and the creations are the recipients of the words. Does that make sense? And that's what he's saying. He's saying it's not, 
it's not just in the, so, so it's, we're not saying just it's the creations experiencing things that way, perceiving things that way. It's actually how God's word perceives things. Now, but here's the thing. God's word, go back to my green thing. God's word is what? Creator. So that means, is that how God sees it? No. No. God sees it like that too. In as much God's word is not something other than God, God sees it that way. But has God still remained God as he truly is? So how many ways does he see it? Let's go back. In as much as God, there is no external reality to God. And that never changed. And, 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 and God didn't, and there's nothing blocking it from God. God didn't move away from it. God didn't change that. So is that still true to God? That there's no external reality? Okay. Is it also true that God hid that so that he could have language in a way of speech? So does God also know that he is a speaker? So in as much as, so in as much as, as God's word is God, God is the speaker. So, so he is, he's recognizing the reality that the word is somehow leaving him. But at the same time, there's no external reality to him. So he's also recognizing the fact that that the word has never left him. Both things are simultaneously true. Okay. What we're doing is we're saying the perspective of God's word, right? What I wrote on the board, this is the shift right now, the first chapter is that what I drew on the board is not just the perspective of the spiritual creations. It's also the perspective of God's word. But if you ever truly separate God's word from God, what are you doing? You're dividing the creator into two. Can you really divide the creator into two? No. So what do we have to say? That the creator is somehow able to have... Hidden himself? To have two simultaneous perspectives, right? That he hid himself and that he is a creator. It's, well, it's actually... So this goes, into, this goes into the idea that if you are hiding for yourself from yourself... Are you really hiding? You are both... Hidden because you hid yourself, and you're both not hidden because there's nothing obscuring you from yourself. And we're not going to go down that train of thought, but yes, what we're going to focus on within as much as God is doing this, right? In as much as God is doing this, um, His word is truly speech, and the Torah reflects the truth of God. Okay. Now I want to I want to be clear. We just quote some other things in the Torah. The Torah also says um, Hashem Echad, God is one. Um, and what that means is, as we learned in chapter 20 and 21, that nothing has changed. So is there, is there really an external reality to God? In as much as the verse says Hashem Echad? Mm-hmm. No. In as much as it says Vayedaber Hashem, Vayemer Hashem, God spoke, then there is something external, right? So I don't know, the Torah contains what appear to be conflicting truths about God. I guess God is bigger than what fits into my limited mind. And that's something we're going to have to deal with. Okay. So the shift, very, very simply, from, 20 to 20, from 21 to 22, what we said is, before we started this chapter, we thought this described whose perspective on reality? The creation. Right, their perspective, the whole creation. That's what it says explicitly in chapter 21. In chapter 22, it says, no, 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 when we say God's speaking, is because the word is actually issuing forth from God and to the creator out like real speech. So that means this is something, so to speak, these two ways of looking at it are somehow internal to God. God both sees himself as the only reality there's nothing external to him, and he also sees himself as a speaker to others. 
This all happened within. Okay, good. Now what we're going to, and that happens because God is doing these tsumsumim, these contractions, these d- diminishing the degree to which the truth that there's nothing outside of him, nothing other than him, is felt so that the word can function like speech, like real speech. But because he's just hiding it, he's not changing it, it's still also true that nothing, nothing's really actually changing. <laughs> okay, now we can continue. Well, what can the word do? It can create many diverse creatures. Okay. Now, we're still on the side of the holy creations now, right? There are many diverse creations. Let, let's think about this for a moment. There's an angel named Michal. Michal is the angel associated with what property, what attribute? Anyone know? Chesed, kindness. And there's an angel, Gavriel, who's associated with? Gavura. Very good. Okay. Okay. We know that there are spheros. One of them is called chesed. One of them is called kavura, yes? So what is the difference fundamentally between the chesed, chesed as a sphera, and mechal, the angel, right, who is defined by this attribute called chesed? What is different between the sphera of kavura and Gavriel, the angel defined by the attribute of kavura? What's the difference? One of them has the angel with the angel and the sphere. Like, when it's the angel, it's, the and Chesed are only part of the angel? No. But Chesed is not defined by Michael. Chesed, Chesed is, like, Michael is smaller than the attribute of Chesed. Maybe, maybe, maybe. That's actually not... No, not to say that. Here's the thing, here's the thing. The simple answer is no. Other angels, yes, but, but that's why he's called the archangel. He's, in other words, all the angels of Chesed are really, are really um, s- subordinate to Michal because Michal is, 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 is synonymous with Chesed. He's defined by that attribute and, and all Chesed really subsumes into mm. Michal. Yeah. Um, well, the angel is a being, whereas the attribute is not a being. Maybe it's created, but it's not a being. And then the angels are... So let's stop there. Here's the thing. Let's, let's, start, let's, let's start there. That's the, number one, okay? The angel's a being, okay? Whatever the sphere of chesed is, if you talk about the sphere of chesed and its relationship with God, and you really mean how it has a relationship with God, then you, you've turned something which is not a being into a being, right? Go back to what I said about me, you, and my words. My words aren't a being, right? Not that they don't exist, right? Okay. I do not have a relationship with my, um, with my emotions. I don't have a relationship with my imagination. Now, I do in a very borrowed sense, but not in a strict sense. Like, I have a relationship with my wife. I have a relationship with my children. I have relationships with my students, Right? I have relationships, for that matter, with random strangers in a way that's much more of a relationship. Why? Because you face the fundamental thing of a being encountering another being, right? And all of that complexity and all that difficult thing, right? Me and my emotions doesn't have that issue, right? There's some kind of internal complexity within myself. So, Michal is a being, and so therefore Michal worships God. Michal and God don't necessarily agree with each other. 
Michal has a sense of his, he, Michal has a mind of his own. And Gavriel has a mind of his own. The spheres don't have minds of their own. The spheres are somehow God reaching out into the world, right? In some sense, the, 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 the end of the spheres turns into what we call God's word. I don't want to go into this right now, but if you, the last sphere is called Malchus and the most external part of Malchus is called God's word, but whatever. So it, it's not like, it's not a being in its own right. So that's number one. And this leads us to a second thing, okay? I have eight children. What is the difference between my eight children and um, my subjective experience of my eight children? So, I mean, my eight children are actual beings outside of me and my subjective experience is just a part of me, right? But there's another thing. Is my subjective experience of my eight children has to somehow have a kind of internal unity because at the end of the day, I'm one person, right? If you have different parts of yourself that don't fit together nicely, what happens to you? You break, right? Make sense? So, you're, so my sense of my eight children has to somehow fit nicely together in a way that in real life, the children actually do so, right? That's why we sometimes, you know, change how we perceive things so it all fits nicely together. Not in the same way. God is a simple, indivisible unity. I don't mean that God is like a person. So whatever way chesed and gvura are, can be thought of as distinct from each other, it's in a very borrowed sense because ultimately the spheros are God's way of reaching out and connecting to the world, right? And God is one and indivisible. So that means really the spheros should not be seen as distinct from each other, really. If you're conceiving of the sphere of chesed distinctly from gvura, then you know you're not conceiving of it properly. Um, which is why it says in the Zohar, when you differentiate, one, when you divide one sphere from the other, it's like creating a division within God. So there's two key differences, and one follows from the next. The spheros, chesed and gvura, are not beings, whereas Michal and Gavriel are beings. And what follows from that is that the chesed and gvura of the spheros are not really um, different entities. They're not dis- truly distinct from each other. They're unified in some way that the Zohar calls Raza the Nusa, the secret of faith, which we're not going to go into. But Michal and Gavriel, like, they're not just distinct from God, they're consequently also very distinct from each other, which means, how do they feel about each other? They don't like each other. I mean, they're not, it's not even personal and vindictive, but they really don't like each other uh, in, in the sense that if you... If you were solely dedicated to a particular agenda, a particular value, a particular vision, that was your whole life, and somebody was devoted to the exact opposite, you would imagine you'd have a hard time getting along with each other, right? Okay. That kind of conflict exists between them. It doesn't exist within God. So that whole notion that they are beings in their own right and that they have their own defining characteristics that puts them at odds even with each other all of that is because the divine word that is creating them is acting where? External to God. If the divine word was all happening internal to God, none of that could be possible, right? The divine word can't carry the truth of Hashem in such an ultimate way because if it did so, it, there couldn't be other beings, there couldn't be diversity. Does it make sense? Okay. Once we understand that about the holy creations, we can then move on to the Klip and Sitrachra, which is what the text does. But before we do that, I want to stop and I want us to think about the holy creations. What is Malach Machal? 
Angel Michael or Gavriel or any of these other beings, what is their relationship with God? Let's, 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 let's really think about what their relationship with God is. Completely subservient to God. Okay. Um, do they feel, do they feel that there's nothing other than God? No, they don't feel there's anything, nothing other than God. I don't want to get into that weird thing. What is their, what is, how do they have any sense of God? Where, where does their sense of God come from? That's a fair question. They're not God, so how do they have an awareness of God, right? That's like a fair question, right? If you feel some way about something, that follows from how you are aware of it, right? So how, did, how do the angels become aware of God? That, that, I don't want to go with, it doesn't tell me how. That's, that's why they exist, which if you notice, they're, you see that they're, they're the in-between between God's God's world, word and the physical world, right? That they're functioning as messengers. Their names, but I'm going to ask you a question, okay? okay? I don't want you to answer it out loud, okay? Like, really, no one answer it out loud. What's your opinion of me? Don't answer it out loud. But you know what I do know? I know how you formed your opinion of me. That you can answer out loud. How did you from form classes. your opinion? Classes. From classes, right? From me speaking to you, right? From what I say and how I say it, right? And how what I'm saying and how I'm saying it has affected your life, your understanding of things, your confusion of things, whatever, right? Inspiration or a sense of like total um, disillusionment with Judaism, whatever the case might be, right? But whatever the way in which I have interacted with you has affected you, that's what formed your opinion of me, right? right? So I would say if there was a student that I explained things in such a way that made them feel that things were very deep and meaningful, important, and they felt empowered, they would probably have a positive view of me, right? And if I spoke to a student in such a way that made them feel stupid and hopeless and that there was no point to anything and everything was totally beyond them, then they might have a very negative view of me, right? But their view of me comes from the way in which my speaking to them has been heard and affected their own minds and experience of life. Make sense? So um, now I'll go back to the question. How does Michal have any awareness of God? His word. His word, right? The, the, the Michal, by virtue of being a spiritual creation, not the physical world, experiences to some degree, how his reality is being created by God's word. So he experiences God as the one speaking to him, speaking him into existence, defining his purpose, etc., 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 etc. That make sense? And so that's what forms his opinion, right? And so the way in which God speaks to Mach Michal determines the way Malach Michal feels about God. It should be like, it's very, very straightforward. So let's say Malach Michal hears God speaking to him. 
Well, he could feel very grateful, right? He could feel um, that every, he could feel very dependent. He could feel that the more, he could realize that, that whenever God speaks to him and he actually gets what God is trying to communicate to him, his reality becomes richer and more beautiful and deeper and truer. And so he wants to, to hear more of what God says, right? That makes sense? Okay. And so let's say, for instance, you had a teacher and you really, and you really liked their classes and the teacher was going to teach something more advanced. What would you want to do? But that might be hard, right? So you might work on yourself so you could hear them and understand the more advanced things, right? Yeah. Okay. And if the teacher said it's really important for me that you do something, right, you might do that very willingly and feel privileged to be able to do so, right? Yeah. And, you know, at some point, if you take this extreme, your whole life might revolve around that teacher, right? Yeah. So that's kind of how the angels and all the holy creations feel about God. That make sense? In other words, their, their worship of God, their service of God, all that stuff, which we're going to call this term bittel, their bittel to God, stems from the fact that they experience God speaking to them. One second, one second, one second. I'll answer that in one, in one second. But that also means, and this is the, the interesting thing, with in their worship of Hashem, within their devotion to Hashem, within all that stuff, there is actually an implicit denial of Hashem. Think about it. Where's the implicit denial? That they think that they're other than God. Because? What's, where's the denial? Because he's speaking. And the whole notion of him speaking is predicated on hiding the more fundamental truth of God that there's nothing external. So you see like the, you see that, right, there's this, there's this, they're, they have a limited sense of, right? There's nothing other than God in the sense they're not independent of God. Their whole existence is the word of God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? But there is still a notion of internal to God, external to God. There's a notion of there's a space where they have some kind of significance. They have some kind of reality. Proof being God is speaking to them, right? God is creating them, giving them existence, life, identity, purpose, structure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they are so enthralled with that and so devoted that, that their whole life revolves around having as much of God's word as they can. Okay, that's wonderful. That's great. I mean, can you imagine a, can you imagine a more sublime existence? And yet, there's this interesting thing. What is it? It's a subtle denial of God's ultimate unity because his ultimate unity is that he has never changed. And that this whole speaking thing is predicated on him hiding an unchanging truth that there's no external reality. Well, here's the thing. Do you know things? Do I know things? Uh-huh. Yeah. When you say you know things, does the word know cover a range of different types of things, such as you know that you're hungry, um, you know that the Chinese Communist Party runs, the, runs China, and you probably don't, don't experience those two facts of reality in the same way, right? Yeah. Okay. So the angels aren't dumb. Okay. Do they understand intellectually? that their entire existence is predicated upon God hiding his ultimate truth? Yes. And how does that make them feel? Not great? Or do they not care? Well, actually what it says like this, what it says like this is they say, wait a minute. If the word of God is so amazing, how much greater is, how much greater is like if you're just like subsumed within God himself? 
But now what price do would they have to pay for that? They would lose their existence, right? So, I mean, there's this, there's this, and, and there is something kind of beautiful and tragic about desiring something that you are incapable of ever having. It's romantic, actually, if you think about it, right? Like, a feature of romantic love is that you desire what you can never have. If you, like, if you, like, figure it out, your, your husband or your, your man, you figure it out, your wife, and you, like, I don't mean, like, having them in, like, a possessive sense, but, like, you, you, you figured them out, you know them, like, there's, like, then, then it's gone. Right, so there's this it's a built-in kind of a thing. There's there's an element of beyond the horizon. So as discussed, there's different types of angels. They relate to this differently. Well, whatever. Yeah, I mean, so there's there's kind of multiple aspects of the angels' worship of God. One is the first element we started, but then you know, if the angels are very very intelligent and deep and profound, they they can come to this other realization in a way that's really impactful, and therefore they may be dissatisfied with 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 the word of God alone and wish they could have something more, but they just can't handle it. And so, you know, makes them a jealous of us because maybe we can actually have, you know, real connection with Hashem. But whatever, topic for later in Tanya. Good? Okay, now we can start talking about Klippa and evil. Okay, we're not yet talking about the physical world. We're just talking about Klippa. Okay, indeed, so great and powerful are the contractions and concealments of the countenance that even unclean things, klipa and sitrachah, can come into being and be created. Now, klipa and sitrachah, again, are spiritual beings, right? Receiving their life and existence from the divine word and the breath of his mouth, blessed be he, in concealment of his countenance and by virtue of the downward, gra- downward gradations. So what does that mean? Do you like your boss? If you're going to work, if you work for a living. How old are you? It depends. If you do like your boss, why would you like him? They treat you nicely. They do treat you nicely, right? They treat you nicely. They make sure that you don't end up on the street and starve to death in exchange for you contributing (laughs) to their business. That's very nice of them. If you fail to contribute sufficient to their business, then they'll throw you out in the street as far as they're concerned and let you starve to death. Is that not what a boss is? I mean, they might then cover that up with a bunch of other nice things. They might like, you know, smile at you in the office and send you a birthday gift and, and tell you that you don't have to come in, you know, when you're sick. And like, and may, you know, there might be a bunch of other stuff that they do, but that's not actually part of them being your boss, is it? What defines them as your boss is the fact that you need the money that they have in order to survive and they will only give it to you if you give them something that they want. That's what a boss is. Right? Okay. So you might think your boss is amazing because you don't relate to them as? That's right. <laughs> but what if your boss makes it very clear that he's the boss? And you don't then you don't like him. <laughs> we do not like those that we are dependent on when the dependency becomes the dominant aspect of the interaction. So do angels not No, angels love God. No, Cleopatra. Now, are children dependent on their parents? Yeah. How do children generally feel about their parents? That's generally. They're controlled. They love them. Not teenagers. Teenagers don't count. <laughs> they want to be connected. They want to feel... Why? In love attachments. Okay. Because here's the thing. 
it is true that without the parents, the children would, you know, suffer miserably and die young. That, that's, that is true. That is true. But that is, that is not... That is not the defining characteristic of their interaction. The defining characteristic of their interaction is that the parents have a genuine interest in the welfare of the children, right? And therefore, the, the, the parents taking care of the children becomes a means to establish a sense of closeness. This is how family is built. By the way, the consequence of this is if you don't really have any needs, it's very hard to establish family. Just think about that for a moment. Because the, the, the clea, the vehicle by which you show that you are genuinely invested in someone else's welfare is by being involved in things that they need. If a person, if I don't need anything from like I could function perfectly fine without you, then there's no way for you to actually make me feel like you're invested in my well-being. So it actually turns out like this. When you're an adult child, not a teenager, teenagers don't count, they're not normal people, you realize it's important for me to maintain some level of vulnerability so that my parents still have an avenue to show me in a real way that they are invested in my well-being. Now, it doesn't have to be financial. It doesn't have to be food, right? And that's the same thing with spouses, the same thing true with friends in different ways, okay? So there's a very big question. Are, are you genuinely interested in someone else and the fact that they depend on you is simply the means by which you can convey that and show that and be part of their life? Or is it you're not really interested in them at all, you have just some sort of ulterior interest and you're getting something out of them? Those are two very different things, yes? Now, if you're on the receiving end of the first, you're going to feel loved, valued, and you're going to want to be closer, right? If on you um, you know, if you are on the if you're on the other side of that, on the other one, you're going to feel used, you're going to resent. You're going to wish you weren't dependent. You may not be so stupid to think you're not, not independent, so you're going you're gonna to maybe acknowledge that you need, you need stuff from there, but you're going to try and minimize your reaction, and as long as you can keep your boss as far out of your life as possible, the better, as long as you still get your paycheck at the end of the month, right? How does Klepa feel about God? It's a Klepa, the sense, look, I've got my thing going, I've got my life, I have my agenda, I've got what I want to do, and I have a problem. What's my problem? I need God. That's a problem. So I've got to figure out how to get what I need from God without God cramping my style, okay? Because like God, like, like God and I, we're not on the same, like I've got my thing and he's got his thing and we're not, right? How do I keep my boss from harassing me on vacation without getting fired? Use the use context of it. There's a teacher and a student. One, one, student one, one, one student, the teacher is teaching because the teacher is actually interested in teaching the student. And the student senses that and feels that. And therefore, the student feels 
the value in, what the, in this, and the student feels a stronger sense of connection. And that's the student that might actually make time after class to talk with the teacher, right? And they might develop a relationship and mentorship, and right? All kinds of stuff can happen from there, right? And then there's a student who feels like the teacher is not really interested in, in teaching the student and doesn't really care whether the student learns anything. The student teacher has some sort of ulterior reason for showing up. Maybe like they have to do this because like they're in a university and like if they don't do a certain number of teaching hours, then they can't have tenure, so they're doing it. And you're like, okay, keep my head down, get the grade and move on, right? Does this make sense? Okay. So where... Are you more hidden? Where are you more hiding yourself? In your relationships, in your interactions with others you value, or your interactions with others that you don't value, but you just have ulterior motives for it? You don't value, right? So, so it's true that God is hiding his ultimate truth in some sense when his word leaves him to enter the created reality so that the creations can be created, right? That's a certain sense of hiding himself because it's hiding the truth that there is no real external reality for God. But it's not hiding his goodness. It's not hiding his truth. It's not hiding his beauty. It's not hiding, it's not hiding who he is in some sense. But who's hiding who? God is hiding himself. But when God now speaks to the klipa, He's hiding himself completely. Now, when I say hiding himself completely, I don't mean like, like the physical world where you can't perceive God at all. I mean the way in which your boss, if your boss is just being honest that he's your boss, is hiding himself. Like, I don't, like, you need to do this work. And if you do this work, you're going to get the stuff, you're going to get payment because that's my way of getting you to do the work because I need you to do the work. But I don't really care about you. Like, you and I have nothing, no personal bond whatsoever. So God doesn't speak to Klippa the same way he speaks to the holy creations. Okay, let's think about this. If God, when God speaks to the holy creations, he is speaking in a more open way. He's showing himself through his words. Completely, absolutely, totally, no, because then there wouldn't be speech at all, but in some sense. And the result of that is that these creations... They love God. They adore God. They worship God. They want to be as close to God as possible, right? That's what makes them holy. That their whole life revolves around being as close to God as they possibly can and maybe even more than they can, right? But then there's these other beings and God does not speak to them in a way where he reveals himself and shows himself. And what's their attitude towards God? The less God, the better, with one technical caveat, we need him, (laughs) I want to just say medrash, okay? Um, which I think drives this point home in a, in a very beautiful way. Um, the, the medrash observes that both Yaakov and um, Paro had dreams. And their dreams are very similar. They both dreamed about their God. And they both dreamed that their God, they both, they both dreamed about themselves. And they dreamt that they were standing. But the difference is who was standing over who. In Paro's dream, he was standing over the Nile. The Nile was the God that he worshipped. And in Yaakov's dream, God was standing over him. Now, physically speaking, if you're standing on something, who's supporting who? The whole thing is holding up, right? So if Yaakov was dreaming that 
God is standing over him, then he is dreaming about a relationship where God is counts on him, God depends on him, God needs something from him, right? God has given him some kind of purpose. On the other hand, what was Paro's dream? That he was standing over the Nile, meaning that he needed something from his God. So how did Paro view God? Like your boss. You need him, but you wish you didn't. Okay. If you were to go to the angels and tell them that they could exist without God, like let's say you gave them that option, would they take it? No, because everything, everything in their life revolves around God, right? I don't want, like, like without God, like what's the point? Everything that makes my existence worth living, everything that makes me want to escape the confines of my existence, I find in, in God and in how God speaks to me, right? So why would, you can't, you can't offer me anything to let go of that. They're, 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 they're completely hooked on God. But now what happens when you go to the Klippa? When you go to the Sitra Achra? And you gave them that option. You say, you know, there is a way for you to live your life and have what you and exist without God. You know, you, you, we, we could arrange that for you. Now, take, they would take that. Now, there is not such a way, but if they could take it, they would do that in a heartbeat. Is this, make, is this making sense? Yeah. So you see that there's two different, once we've introduced that there's some reality to God hiding himself so that there can be speech, we can then add on a whole new kind of hiding where he's not just hiding the fact that there's no external reality to him. He's hiding who he is at all. And he just merely becomes... The, the thing that you need depend on in order to exist. And, and nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be dependent on another. Everyone wants to, you know, be self-sufficient. And that's klipa. Klipa is the desire to be entirely independent and entirely self-sufficient. Is it? No. 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 But once it has what it needs from God, it's like in my little Daladamas, so in my little fiefdom, I am king. Now, I happen to need things from the bigger king. It's like, you know, Israel, we're an independent country, but the United States needs to give us weapons so we can fight our wars, right? <laughs> this is what they used to call vassal states. You are an independent kingdom, provided that you do what we say and we will continue to support your government, <laughs> right? But no, we have to, we're independent, we're equals, right? That's how Klippa feels about God. It's like, like, it's like who died and made you king? Like, why, why should you have to boss me around? I, 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 it, it just seems so unfair. Have you ever felt that way about God? Yeah. You don't have to answer out loud, but if you have, guess who, guess who was enlivening you at the time? That's right. Okay. Have you ever felt like bargaining with God because, you know, like maybe if I give him some of the stuff he wants, he'll give me some of the stuff that I want because there's nowhere else to get it from? So that's more of like a, a mature, mellowed out Kalipa that realizes, you know, it's just, there's, there's no point in fighting the system. You might as well work with it. Cause, <laughs> but it's still Kalipa, right? <laughs> Have you ever felt like there would be nothing better than to just to spend time with God? If only, I, if only I didn't need to eat and sleep and be worried about finances and, and have this upset and like figure out how to like feel like I have social status and I could just devote myself to, to basking in God's beauty and greatness. Have you ever felt like that? Okay, so then what was enlivening you? 
Yeah, that's right. See how it works? Yeah. Okay. Have you sometimes just been totally oblivious to God, just lived your life? Then you're stuck in the physical world. <laughs> No sense of God at all. Um, anyway, this makes sense? Okay. So that's what we're going to, and what we're, he's going to do now is he's really going to develop what's happening in the way God speaks to the klipa that's different than the way God speaks to the holy creations. What's really happening there. Okay. And once we do that, um, then we're going to be set up to understand what it means to do a mitzvah, what it means to sin, and how every sin is really idolatry or worse, and every mitzvah is really the unity of God. Okay, so I think this is a better. Even when we didn't get we didn't get any further in the text as of right now, but I think we're in a better position to understand what's going to happen going forward. Okay, some people had questions and they waited very patiently for me to finish the medrash, or they forgot their questions. Um, my question, I think, is about to be answered, so. I'll hold it. Okay. Oh, I had a question. Um, so the way that God interacts with the Klippa and the Holy Creations defines what type of creature they are? That's right, because remember, God's word creates their reality, right? When I speak to you, I'm just influencing your reality. I'm altering your reality. I don't create your reality. So in a space of the holy creation, of spiritual creations, do they not have free choice because God is creating the reality by the way he interacts with them? Oh, that was the thing. Someone asked about, okay. Free choice is a messy thing. There's many different notions of free choice. I'll talk about this, this briefly for a moment. Okay? There's many different notions of free choice. I think sometimes it's easier to start um, very, very, very simple. If you let go of a rock, it's going to fall, right? If you let go of a rock, it'll fall, right? If you, if you put a match to something flammable, it's going to burn, right? Those things, I can't, I can't really say... Um, I can't really attribute the falling to the rock itself. Let me explain to you why. Did the rock do anything to make itself be that way? No. No, right? In other words, yes, it's a property of the rock, but the fact that rocks have the property to fall and flammable things have the property to burn is, is, is just is just something that is a brute fact. Okay, then we move up a step and we say something like a dog. Right? If you put food in front of a dog, right, the dog will go eat the food, generally speaking. Well, why? And here it gets a little more interesting because the dog experiences hunger and the dog smells the food and the dog, right, can... I, I'm, not, I, I'm specifically not going into self-control. And so the dog is having a very rich subjective experience which result in the dog having some kind of psychological drive towards the food. And somehow that psychological drive actually gets the dog to physically move. So there's a way in which the dog's movement is much more attributable to the dog than the rock's falling is attributed to the rock, right? But then if we ask, if we killed the dog, what would be left of the dog? Well, that's not a dog. That used to be a dog. What would be left of the dog? Nothing. Nothing. If we, this, I'm sorry for being a little bit graphic, but if we cut off one of the legs of the dog, the dog would remain, right? But if we destroyed the body of the dog, what would happen? 
It wouldn't exist in different forms? No, it wouldn't exist. There wouldn't exist. Okay. The dog wouldn't exist. The dog wouldn't exist. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm sorry that this is this. So now because the dog wouldn't exist, that means in some sense, everything about the dog can be reduced to the structure of the body. And if everything is reduced to the structure of the body, at the end of the day, the body is a product of physical things outside the dog. So the do- what's interesting is happening is that, you know, the dog was conceived by other dogs that the dog can't take credit for, right? Mm-hmm. And now the dog has the body of a dog. The dog can't take credit for that. The body of the dog is an environment. The dog can't take credit for that. The interaction of the body of a dog and its environment produces all sorts of subjective experiences like hunger and drive and memory and imagination, whatever, that then for some interesting way actually cause the dog to take physical actions, right? So there's some kind of internal being to the dog, but at the end of the day, it's all reducible back to the physicality of the world, which is not the dog, right? Okay, now, if you take a person and don't do this in real life and you kill them, what's left of the person? Their soul. Okay, I'm gonna actually use a different word so that it... The idea comes home, but you're right. We're going to say their mind. Their mind is not a product of their body. Well, if their mind is not a product of their body, okay, why are minds not products of bodies? It is a very good question. Okay, but because at the end of class, you're just going to have to take my word for it. Now you can ask me questions and answers. Because mind, the mind is not a product of the body. And because the mind is not a physical thing, it's not constructed of other things, one of the features of minds as opposed to bodies is that minds are irreducible. Very, very simply, um, can you take a body and saw it in half? Now, it's it's no longer, it's no no longer um, the body, but you have the stuff the body was made of, right? So a body is is how a bunch of, it's made up of material that's arranged in a certain structure and complexity. If you take a mind, can you, ha- can you cut a mind in half? It doesn't really, I mean, a mind is, it has an indivisibility to it. The mind can experience a variety of things, emotions, intelligence, memory, sense perception, but the mind that is experiencing those things is an indivisible. Okay, so the mind is not a product of other things. The mind is not grounded in the body. Now, here's the question. If you do stuff, is your mind involved in the doing? Wait. If you do anything, if you... Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, could we say that maybe there's degree of your mind being involved? Like I'd say when, when infants do stuff, very little mind is involved, right? right? When great sages do stuff, very much mind is involved. Right. So then if, we, if what we mean by your free will is how much we can attribute what you do to yourself, which is the classic understanding of free will in Judaism... Well, then the only beings with free will are beings of mind. Angels have minds. In fact, that's what angels are. They're just minds. And people have minds. Although to various degrees, their mind is the influential factor in their life. Um, And therefore, people have various degrees of free will. Some rise enough to the threshold that we hold them responsible. And there's degrees to that in halacha. And then angels obviously have free will. And then God obviously has free will. And in that sense, yes, and Sitrachah has free will. They all have free will because all of what they're doing is coming from their own minds and minds are not made, and their minds are not physical things that are made up of other stuff. And so the, now, 
there is something unique about God's free will, and there's something unique about human free will, which is different, and Hasidus likes to talk about that a lot. Um, it's not unique to Hasidus, Hasidus makes a big emphasis, and this leads people to think that angels don't have free will, and in that certain senses they do not have free will, but angels do have free will, in the sense that when an angel is doing something, it is because the angel decided that that is what it wants to do. Because it is a, has a mind of its own. So it can decide not to do it. And if it could decide not to do it. Now, to illustrate, to, one second, to illustrate the difference between your free will and an angel's free will, very, very simply, I would like you to now um, come up with an idea that will get you the Nobel Prize in chemistry. Well, they're not physically... Why not? Because I don't know chemistry. That's right. In other words, your mind, even though everything your mind does, it does freely, your mind is limited in what it can do. Right. Okay. Well, if your mind is a mind of chesed, whatever you do, you do freely, but... Only within chesed. chesed. Got it. If your mind is a mind of evil, everything you do, you do freely, but only within the realm of evil. What's unique about human minds is that our minds are not limited in terms of their genre. I see your hand. In other words, like this. Every, in other words, like this. Pick any, anything you want. There's the minds of an angel that is going to be better at it than your mind is. Always. Always, 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 always. The one thing that's different about your mind the minds of, of humans versus the minds of angels is that the minds of humans can, you know, it's like a jack of all trades, a master of none. Mm-hmm. You can do a little math, you know, do a little kindness, a little ethics, a little evil. And therefore, the realm in which our minds are operating is attributable to us. So in other words, like this, the fact that an angel of kindness is doing kindness as opposed to, um, as opposed to judgment well, okay, that's not really up to them because it's not within their mind. But that they're doing kindness as opposed to doing nothing and the way they go about doing the kindness, that's entirely up to them. And if they do it the wrong way, God will punish them. As it says clearly, explicitly in the Talmud, that angels get punished. Yeah. And if an angel of evil, well, they can't decide to do good, but they can decide to do evil or not to do evil. They can decide the way in which they'll do evil. And then they can be punished for the evil that they do because they decided to do it. Right, just refraining. It's like I can talk and I can be silent, but those are my options within my faculty of speech. Right. I can't. I can't. For, I can't. For instance, think with my faculty of speech. It's outside of that ability. Right. Yes. No, lobotomy is just the, the, the brain. Yeah, and that could change like a person's perception of themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's not that's not cutting the mind in half. The mind is not the thing you're perceiving. It's the thing perceive. It's the thing that is perceiving. It's the subject of the conscious experience. It's not the object. So when you are aware of yourself, okay. So you say let's use the let's use the English words I and me. What's the difference between I and me? Grammatically, I is a subject. And me, I don't know okay, <laughs> I, 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 you, you really, need, I'm sorry, this kind of stuff, you actually very need technical terms, so like, I, I don't know the German, but, I speak Swedish, I don't know Swedish either, I really don't know Swedish, I know a little bit of Yiddish, okay, 
So I'll use some examples and, and you, you have to, okay? If we say I threw the ball, okay? I is a subject because it's the one doing the throwing and the ball is the object. It's the thing that the, that it, that, that thing is happening to, okay? So if I say the man bit the dog, even though that's weird, we would have to say the one doing the biting is the man. He's the subject of the verb. And, and the dog is the object, right? Now, in English, use word order to tell you which one is which. Um, in Hebrew, for instance, word order doesn't help. That's what the word S is for. So if I say, S ha'adam nashach ha'kelev, so then I know the man was the one being bitten because the word S comes before the word ha'adam. That S tells you what's the object. It's called direct object indicator. Now, when we use pronouns, when we use pronouns, um, most languages have different cases of pronouns. They have one set of pronouns for subjects and a different set of pronouns for objects. Um, some have actually multiple cases, but we're going to overly simplify this because it's what we need for here. So we have I as opposed to me, they as opposed to them, he as opposed to him, Right? You see how this works? Okay. So, now, when I say... Now, sometimes we'll actually use the, use the term myself. So when I say... I would never say, me is looking. That doesn't make any sense. Me is never looking. I am looking. But I would say, you're looking at me. So the me is something that can be seen. The I is something that's doing the seeing. Make sense? So when you perceive yourself, there's actually two there. What are the two? There's the subject. That's the mind. And then there's what's called the self-concept or self-perception. That's the thing that you think you are, which you might be right about, you might be wrong about. So when I look at you, I, I see something. I might be right in how I see you. I might be wrong in how I see you. I can... I can turn my attention to myself and I can look at myself and the thing that I'm seeing, I think is me, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's, maybe it's a distorted version of me. Now, I use glasses, right? So I don't actually see you directly because my eyes are broken. Not like permanently and badly. But, and if you think about it, so what's happening is this, because I have to see you through my eyes and my eyes are not, they're maladaptive, so I use glasses to compensate and that hopefully I'm seeing you more accurately, right? Okay, in as much as your mind is embodied, your mind uses your brain to perceive. So if your brain is broken, the mind will perceive things differently. Does that mean that the mind has changed? Am I changing because I take on and off the glasses? What I'm perceiving has changed because the, the, the thing through which I'm perceiving is more or less effective. So brains are not minds. Brains are pieces of meat that for some strange reason our minds use to experience reality in as much as we're in the physical world. So if you do things to the brain, you affect how the mind perceives things. So it's like the mind, is it the essence of a person? That's an interesting discussion. Uh, that, that, that is an interesting discussion. Um, very, very simply, the Rambam would say, yes. And the morale would say no, and we'll leave it at that. Okay. And Hasidus says they're both right in some weird way. Okay. Um, so, so, so now you're asking about, so, so 
And that's what I mean, a mind of their own, right? Um, and so animals don't really have a mind of their own. They have experiences, but it's not, it's not grounded in mind. It's grounded in biology. And so when the biology goes away, there's nothing left, right? The idea of what we call a soul that survives death is that, you know, your mind is not a product of the biology. The mind inhabits your body, but it's not the body. And so if the body goes away and it's completely not relevant, then the mind, I don't know, goes to some spiritual reality. I don't know. So if free will is, is the idea that things that minds do come from the mind in a way that things that physical objects do doesn't come from the physical object, that's what we mean fundamentally by freedom, well then obviously angels have some notion of free will. It's just constrained because the, their minds are narrow in scope and ours are shallow in depth, so you know. <laughs> or shallow in, or short in reach is a better way of putting it. Right. Our minds are, are, are deeper and broader, but we don't reach as far. And, and their minds are, are narrower and shallower, but have much greater reach. So, okay. So yes, they do have some kind of free will. <laughs> there is an idea in Hasidus where there's a notion of freedom of kind of transcending your own mind. And like that is unique to people and God. <laughs> That's a topic for another time. All right.